0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast.
0: We have a very unique opportunity now. A Ukrainian soldier who fought in 2014 on the front lines and was very severely wounded, fighting the Russians. And he's doing so again, uh, this time in, uh, in 2022. He wasn't born in Ukraine. But he became a Ukrainian citizen, and he's a very, very loyal citizen of the country. Um, Masi Nayam joins us. Masi, how are you?
2: Uh, thank you. I'm fine. Now now better even than I was before.
0: Yeah, I, I'm so looking forward to speaking with you, and it's a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much. Um, say hello as well to uh, your interpreter and friend, Alexandra. Hi, Alexandra. Hi. Thank you very much for, for participating.
3: You're very welcome.
0: So where, if Masi needs any help, you'll provide it. If not, we'll just talk with Masi. Can I ask you, Masi, where you are in Ukraine, where you're fighting now?
2: Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I fight uh, near Zaporizhia, and then we go to Donbass, uh, it was uh, a city called uh, Severodonetsk near Severodonetsk.
0: So you were in the middle of all of that. We've been reading about and hearing about and watching some of the video, the films that come out of that area. The fighting was intense.
3: We saw the shots of those areas and the level of conflict was very high. There were a lot of wars.
2: Yeah, you know, in in that time that I was there, it was very uh, difficult uh, uh, time because we uh, we have a lot of problems with. Я хотів сказати, що да, в тому місці було достатньо важко, були важкі бої. В першу чергу це пов'язано з тим, що вони it
3: was quite hard because they used a lot of artillery and we don't have access to so much. And uh, that's why there are a lot of shelling.
0: But you have been uh, very successful. The Ukrainian military is doing exceptionally well against the Russians. Why is the Ukraine military so successful uh, fighting... Uh, the Russians, Massey. Many experts thought the Russians would be in Kiev seventy-two hours after they entered Ukraine. Why are you so successful? Uh,
2: uh, I think because uh, я, я думаю, що це через нашу uh, в з людьми, які воюють проти нас. Вони вимушені, ну вони йдуть на війну uh, в Україну за гроші або за, через страх відмовитись.
3: I think it's due to motivation because, in case of people that came to our territory, they came for money, they came out of fear, they came because they couldn't say no. But we are protecting the last things we have it's our houses and our families.
0: Yeah. Um, what have you seen the Russians do to Ukrainian civilians and Ukrainian cities?
3: Mm. Чи ви побачили, що росіяни роблять з українськими містами та українськими е- громадянами?
2: Вони знищують, це єдина задача росіян, знищити е- е- міста України як у- і-, і-, і людей, е- українців Фактично ми це називаємо в Україні геноцидом
3: they destroy, their only task is to kill people, and basically we call it a genocide.
0: Yeah, we've, we've talked about that. To see that going on must be absolutely, absolutely horrible. Do you uh, do you have the Western weapons that you need, Masi? And uh, how much are the Western weapons really helping you?
2: Um... Особисто в мене не було цієї зброї, але я знаю, що зараз поставки вже більш активні, тому, да, зброя така приходить. Вона дійсно ефективна, але її ефективність можна було б виміряти, якби її було більше, оскільки на певних ділянках є вона, ділянках є вона на інших немає.
3: I personally didn't have access to this weapon, but I think it's effective. Uh, But to be able to uh, evaluate the effectiveness of it, the uh, logistics should be more consistent. So more agents and more fighters should have access to this uh, weapon, and then we will be able to evaluate the effectiveness.
0: Okay. Uh, Masa, you fought the Russians in 2014. And you were uh, badly wounded in that uh, in that particular war. Is it very different this time in 2022? I know Ukraine is better prepared than you were in 2014, but is the fighting uh, the fighting the Russians very different?
2: Very different. No, z drugich pytanja. Da, one very different is that, that, that. Todi v nas ne bolo zadaci vybrat se nazad. У нас була задача фактично обороняти, не дати росіянам піти далі. Зараз в нас стоять задачі, куди цікавіші, як повернути свої землі, тобто ми можемо йти в наступальний в наступ можемо йти. І це суттєво змінює ситуацію. До того ж, нам не приходиться йти на якісь перемир'я, дні тиші, коли нам забороняло стріляти в 2014 році. Зараз в нас такого немає. И це суттєво полегшує задачі як такі, що повернути своє.
3: Right now we have different goals. So in 2014 we had to stop the war and now we have to obtain our territories back and this is much more interesting task. And uh, at the same time, we have uh, much um, easier um, conditions from the point of view. We don't have to follow the quiet days uh, when we were not allowed to fight back in 2014.
0: Okay. Are you confident you can win this war?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: I think, uh, think, yeah. I feel that, that, yeah. We can win this 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 war, uh, and I, um, I I don't see future uh, without this win. Uh, future of for democracy, uh, for Europe, you know.
0: Yeah. I, here's a tough question for you. Have you started the day with friends, fellow soldiers who are right there beside you? So you start the day with them standing beside you and then by that night they're dead
3: складне питання до вас що починали день з вашими колегами солдатами які стояли поряд вами а потім в той самий день вони були мертві
2: так таке відбувається окрім солдат з якими я знайомий через війну ще дуже багато відомих людей моїх близьких друзів вони зараз на війні Часто буває таке, що людина навіть пише тобі, а через день-два виявляється, що її вбили, і таке трапляється дедалі частіше, і це, це величезна трагедія для всього українського народу, тому що у нас у всіх є такі люди, знайомі, і я думаю, що таке трапляється кожен день серед моїх знайомих. Особисто в мене таке відбулося два рази.
3: Uh, I personally had gone through this experience twice, and I think all of us have uh, such people with whom you text mm-hmm. or video chat a call, and then you know that this person, it was your last conversation.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine try to imagine what you what that would be like for you. What do you, Massey, what do you want Canadians to know about the war in Ukraine? What do you want Canadians to understand about this fight against Russia?
2: Угу.
3: Що Ви хочете, щоб канадці зрозуміли про цю боротьбу з Росією?
2: Що попри те, що в нас є велика трагедія, коли вбивають наших людей, вчиняють війсь... воєнні злочини, попри це ми, як українці, маємо іншу цінність. Ми не вдаємось до нецивілізованих способів війни. Uh, і я б хотів би, щоб канадці про це знали, що кожен день uh, нас ну ми, ми це розуміємо, і більшість українців uh, цих цінностей притримуються навіть тоді, коли uh, росіяни на відео показують вбивство наших солдат. Це значить про те, що війна uh, що, що нам що, що нас треба ще більше підтримувати, аби ми були впевнені, що цінності. I do believe that
3: Canadians should know that we follow the rules of law and we follow the war rules and we are civilized and we don't torture and uh, don't kill prisoners and uh, we want the world to stand by us because of this reason
0: and the world is standing by you, and it needs to continue to uh, to stand by you. Uh, one more question, Masi. You weren't born and raised in Ukraine, but here you are for the second time fighting for your adopted country against a Russian invasion. Why is Ukraine so important to you?
2: Um, because um, the society in which I live, Воно мені близьке рідне по цінностях, і я розумію, що будь-яка імміграція вона дуже складна. Нас ніхто по-чесному щиро не, не чекає в іншому світі, окрім як в самій Україні, тому що в Україні. Бо звати не націоналізму в тому сенсі, що я, як звичайно, я в, ну, людина, яка народилася в Каніста, в Україні, а, мав можливість стати адвокатом, побудувати свою компанію, і мені ніхто не заважав це зробити. І а, тому ці цінності мені важливі. Я захищаю самоцінності настільки землі, скільки цінності, які я в цьому суспільстві.
3: For me, it is important that uh, I, a person who was not born and raised in Ukraine, was able to start my own business, to become a lawyer and to start a company and run it. And nobody ever um, was against it or um, prohibited me from doing this. And that's why I'm protecting the values, not the land.
0: Yeah. One more question. When will you be returning to the fighting? Do you know?
2: Коли ви будете
3: повертатися на війну чи ви знаєте? Uh,
2: мені треба uh, нас, м- м- моя найперша задача зараз вижити оскільки uh, попереду ще операція і як тільки та операція закінчиться і я виживу, я думаю, що якщо дозволить мене мені держава я повервернуться.
3: Uh, Myй first task right now is to survive because я have surgeries ahead of me. And if after that the government allows, I will come back.
0: So the federal court is presented with preliminary arguments now in the legal challenge of Justin Trudeau's governments invoking the Emergencies Act in February of this year. Now the liberals continue to insist their action was necessary and they challenge reports and the documents suggesting they had options. Mr. Trudeau is now hauling the allies into the argument, saying Canada's allies, United States... Really thought it was necessary that the Emergencies Act was invoked. Maybe Joe Biden didn't mention the Emergencies Act by name. Maybe Joe didn't remember what it was called. Uh, Christine Van Gein joins us, litigation director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. The CCF filed an application in late February for a judicial review of the Trudeau government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. Hi, Christine. Hi, thanks for having me on. Good to have you with us. What is the case the CCF is making before the federal court?
4: So the merits of hearing is what we say is that the high legal threshold for invoking the Emergencies Act, which is extraordinary legislation. It's the replacement to the War Measures Act. The threshold to use this incredibly powerful legislation is very, very high. This is legislation that allows the government to make new criminal laws without parliamentary oversight. Incredibly powerful. And the, the threshold for it to be met is also very high. It's supposed to be for things like um, wars or terrorism. Uh, and we do not believe it was met in this case in order for the convoy to be cleared out of Ottawa. Um, the convoy was cleared ultimately using traditional police tools And we have heard from the RCMP commissioner and from the acting chief of police in Ottawa that they did not request the Emergencies Act to be used. And the the, the federal government, the politicians seem to have misled us on that because they originally, as you played in that clip, said that the law enforcement did ask for it. Law enforcement says no. So uh, we, we are challenging their use of that legislation as unlawful, that this threshold was not met, and therefore, the regulations that were introduced under that legislation were unconstitutional. Those are the regulations that uh, restricted gatherings and the regulations that uh, froze bank accounts.
0: Yeah, that's another issue. So the Emergencies Act, really, as I keep saying, it's the nuclear option for Parliament because it changes everything. It compromises the civil rights of Canadians for as long as it's in place. Now, what I find really interesting was the time frame. It's illustrative to me that the EA was not needed. It was removed just a few days after being invoked. So if the nation is in fundamental crisis, then I would expect such a crisis would not be dismantled in 10 days.
4: I mean it, I wouldn't rule out that possibility right like the idea of the emergencies act is that it's a temporary situation so the use of the emergencies act is always supposed to be temporary what makes what, what raises my suspicions in the use here was that they invoked they invoked it and then they repealed it right before the senate was set to vote on confirming the use of that legislation and it was looking from political observers' commentary and just sort of the news reports about this, it was looking like the Senate was not going to confirm the use of the Emergencies Act. And uh, repealing it meant that the government wouldn't need to face that uh, that vote in the Senate, which would be politically devastating. Now, of course, we don't know what, was, what, what ultimately would have happened because they repealed, but that's a big a red flag for me.
0: Yeah, Your your counsel at the, uh, the court has pointed to the government making poor decisions, establishing and maintaining a proper record for its actions and decision-making. Would it make things a, a lot easier now?
4: I think what we have been really focused on this past week is the hearing that took place on Monday. On Monday, we have said – I mean, we have argued that if the government is going to invoke this legislation, they need to justify it. They need to provide an explanation. They have not done that. Uh, instead, they have basically provided us with two sentences that are, are essentially a restatement of the standard in that legislation. They said that it was an urgent temporary situation uh, that was national in scope, which is just kind of a restatement of the, the actual legislation. So it's kind of like saying the Emergencies Act was justified because it was justified. Like, that is not sufficient. No, it isn't. So, so what we have done is we brought a motion at the federal court asking the government to be compelled to provide more information. We've asked for access to the minutes from the what's called the Incident Response Group, which is sort of the secretive closed-door um, group made up of uh, law enforcement, of senior government officials, and of cabinet ministers. And we asked for minutes from that group, and we asked for minutes from cabinet. And the government did provide some of those documents. And getting around cabinet confidence that way is very unusual at all. So we did get access to some documents, which has been widely reported. It was on the cover of the Golden Mail, covered the Toronto Star on Friday. Uh, But those documents, again, were highly redacted. So we have asked for the redactions to be removed so that the court can do its job in assessing whether or not the use of that legislation was justified. If the government will not provide us with an explanation, we may be arguing that an adverse inference should be drawn against the government. If they're not going to provide an explanation, we should be assuming that they do not have a good one.
0: It's a, it's a nursing crisis in Canada. More and more nurses are leaving the profession or at least leaving Canada to practice nursing elsewhere, maybe the United States. Linda Silas is the president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. Hi, Linda.
5: Good afternoon,
0: Roy. Is it an overstatement to say that there is a nursing crisis in Canada?
5: Not at all. Uh, It's a reality, and any policymaker, politician who thinks it's not a crisis... They should just go knock at any doors of a hospital in this country or a long-term care facility.
0: So share with us, please, how this nursing crisis is manifesting itself in various healthcare care environments. And I'm just going to run something by you here and just get your thoughts on this. We've had twice now very troubling, very troubling uh, stories, incidents of people dying while waiting for care, in emergency rooms. They've been there for hours, days. I think in one case, it was two days. I could be corrected on that. But is that, and I don't want to overstep here, but could that be a manifestation of the nursing shortage?
5: What I do know for sure is all those cases, and it's not only those uh, who are Who have passed away in our emergency rooms but it's also those who stay way too long without being uh, receiving any medical treatment or assessment Um, there's not enough people there's not enough people to watch uh, patients that are in our emergency rooms that are in the wait uh, rooms uh, waiting rooms uh, and is it a symptom it's a symptom for sure. Uh, I worked in the emergency room, yes, uh, a long time ago. But uh, we did have enough staff to not only triage our patient because you're triage when you walk in. Uh, if you're lucky enough to walk in, Roy, let's remember many of these emergency rooms are closing because of a lack of short, yeah. uh, lack of staff. Yeah, but you're also. Kept up, you you know. There's staff there to be able to go check on you. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, just talking too fast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. Um, so we have a situation then where nurses are experiencing burnout. There's just too much, too much work. Double shifting. I mean, I've read about the double shifting. I've received emails from nurses. In Canada, saying, look, I go to work and expect to work an eight-hour shift or a 12-hour shift or whatever the case may be, where they are employed. But suddenly, it doubles up. Oh. And, uh, and so and it happens over and over. So that has to be a very significant issue for the nurse, for the patient, for the entire healthcare system.
5: Yes, for sure. And those nurses who do the double shift or the 24 hours uh, or sleep at the hospital, that makes the news. What doesn't make the news is when you're working your 8-hour or 12-hour shift and there's nobody to replace you and you have to stay two, three, four hours extra, that doesn't make the 6 o'clock news. But that puts a big pressure on this nurse family, on the either her children or the, the whole family. Whatever he or she had planned after their shift is completely destroyed. And also, they're tired. They're burnt out. They get sick easily because they just never know when they're going to go home when they go into a workplace.
0: So how much of an issue is it across the country, not just in one province? Sometimes you get a one province that gets a lot of attention. Uh, generally, one of the larger provinces like Ontario, British Columbia, Quebec, they get they get the lion's share of attention. But how much of an issue is it nationally? The nurses are saying, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go find work elsewhere. How many nurses are, I, I, I don't want a number from me, but is it, um, is it a, a, an appreciable fact The nurses are leaving their profession in Canada to go elsewhere, where they're treated differently, where the pay may be better, in the United States. Is that an appreciable reality? Or retiring early, is that that noticeable in the system?
5: Yeah, those retiring early, uh, that's noticeable. We're talking about 25% uh, who are 55 and over who, who are saying, uh, where's the exit door? We have internal studies that say one in two nurses want to change jobs. Uh, and then there's the rest who just want to go part-time or casual. Uh, so that's putting more pressure into the vacancy. Staff Canada just came out with a report They've been reporting the overtime in the healthcare system since 1997 ish. And it's the month of July was the worst month they've ever seen. Uh, nurses, in particular, do two and a half times more overtime than any other worker in the country. So they sounded an alarm. We turned around and asked uh, Stat Canada, can you look at the vacancy report uh, that they came out in May and June? Where over 130,000 plus vacant position in healthcare, and we know nurses are about 60% of those, were vacant. Look at that. Look at the uh, overtime you just uh, talked about, and look at the working short. Uh, what's the impact on the healthcare system? Yeah, yeah. And what's the impact on patients? Yeah.
0: That's it. Well, that's it. We talk about the impact on the healthcare system, fair enough. But as you just said, it's also the impact on maybe primarily. It's the impact on on the patients. I, a few days ago, the vice president of the BC Nurses Union stated wait times for patients okay. are the worst she has ever heard. So, so, we have the crisis: hundreds of thousands of hundreds of thousands of surgeries delayed, um, ERs jammed, nurses walking away. Why aren't we coming out of this crisis? We've had public health care for many decades. Why haven't we figured this out? How come we're not coming out of it? You and Dr. Smart were on this program together, the president of the Canadian Medical Association, just before the premier's conference, the Council of the Federation. And you talked to the premiers. Why are we not coming out of this, Linda?
5: Well, from my opinion, I think it's because we see health care as an expense. We never see it as an investment into our economy. We forget that every time a... Young, pa- young parents have a child in our healthcare system, or a cancer patient goes for their chemo or surgery or whatever. We're not creating bankruptcy at the other end. We are supporting all of that. And you know, there's an old saying: takes more than roads to build the economy, but it takes a healthy healthcare system too. So we need to start better planning. We need to do what we've done with our construction industry and plan long term look at what's going to be needed in five ten years and build a workforce for that and if need so build the buildings for that but we don't we work it into a political cycle that just gets a lot of talk around election time yeah. and then we're into a crisis
0: so do we say then is it does it become this conversation and i don't want to say this but based on what you just said It's part of the discussion, part of the conversation. Does it become a, we're in a crisis, we're in a mess at the moment. We have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of surgeries that haven't been done. We're way behind. Mm -hmm. Um, Five million Canadians don't have a family doctor, so it breaks down right at that point. Uh, Hospitals are jammed. Emergency rooms in some hospitals are closing for a couple of days at a time because they haven't got the staff. So do we then look five, ten years down the road, as you suggested, and say, whatever happens now, boy, this is tough to say, but whatever happens now is going to have to be collateral damage because we're not going to be ready to recover until we put in place plans that we think of now.
5: No, 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 Roy. Roy. <laughs> Sorry if if that's the impression I left. No, you
0: didn't get that impression, but I think it's a relevant question after what you said.
5: Yeah, no, uh, you know, there are ways to help the healthcare workforce, to help the nurses, the doctors, and the rest of the team. You know, why does a doctor or nurse spend an hour in front of a computer system trying to find the proper form to uh, send a, a prescription or a test requirement to a uh, for a fa- for a patient, uh, why does it take a nurse to porter a patient from one department to the other? You know, why do we have nurses having to clean uh, hospital rooms because there's not enough staff? So there's urgent things that governments could do right now to help the workforce, uh, such as meeting with our experienced nurses and saying. What does it take to keep you? What does it take to keep you working in my hospital on this unit right now for the ne- uh, next? Oh, HNL- oh, okay, oh,
0: oh, oh, let me jump in here. Is that not going on?
5: No, no. Uh, we're having a lot of studies on what's wrong with the system. We're not having enough discussion on what can we do to fix it. So there are some good examples. You know, if I look at Newfoundland Labrador, uh, if I look at Nova Scotia, a bit in New Brunswick, a bit in PI, the Atlantic, it's, the discussions are happening faster. But they're also identifying we need more help. Very little discussion, if none, are happening in Ontario, Quebec, and then I go on to the rest of the country. Very little discussions are happening on how can we strategize? How can yeah, we but but Linda fix the situation now and then to plan better for tomorrow
0: but linda when you come out of the uh, the premier's conference the council of the federation meetings mm-hmm. you and dr smart were there a month ago mm-hmm. almost exactly a month ago and you were on this program almost exactly 48 hours before that conference began so the politicians come out of the conferences and they say all the right things because
4: mm-hmm.
0: somebody wrote it out for them you know and it's the truth. They, they press releases, media releases are written by somebody who says, "Let me write this in a closed way so there's no comeback, as few questions as possible." So, why, um, why is this continuing? This is the question that people have. You can't keep look to me. The ideal world, as far as healthcare delivery is concerned today, is to get politics out of it because politics uses healthcare as a political football it is used to win elections and hopefully not lose elections but at the other end of that of that scale is the patient the healthcare provider the nurse the doctor the orderly the paramedic they're all part of the system and if the system doesn't work in one particular sphere it doesn't work anywhere because they're interdependent are they not
5: Yes, they're interdependent, but like it or not, we work into a world that is governed and governed by politicians. What I can tell you, at the uh, Council of Federation meeting, yes, there was a press release, a very good press release written. But when we had our breakfast meeting with every premier except the premier of Quebec, they were looking at us in the eyes and they were as concerned as we were. And they agreed we needed... uh, A national plan, we need national data to know exactly where we are going, but also funding to fix this, and fix it for more than a generation. But what
0: does the funding funding do, Linda? I mean, I understand, we're spending hundreds of billions of dollars in healthcare now. Is is the answer spending more money?
5: The uh, answer is spending smarter. And that is the key, and that's the message that uh, Nurses Union and CMA, uh, the Doctors' Association, also said. You need to be careful where you put your money. Yes, more money is needed. The federal government is not spending its fair share. That's post-COVID, because during COVID, you remember, the federal government stepped up to the plate and really uh, helped all the province and territory, any association, any unions that needed help, they were there. But now we're into a different type of crisis, which is a health human resource crisis. We're telling everyone we don't have enough educated bodies to take care of Canadians or people living in Canada. I have
0: have 20 seconds here. That's all the time (laughs) we have left. Let me ask you this question. Are you getting enough young people who want to get into the nurses' profession? Can you give me a really quick answer on that?
5: Yes, we are. The key for us is to make sure they have attractive jobs in our communities that they will stay and work full time.
0: About a year ago, uh, Bruce Moncor, Afghan campaign Canadian Armed Forces veteran, and speaking for Afghan Vets of Canada and uh, the nonprofit Valor in the Presence of Enemies, the enemy, joined us on this program with the former Chief of Defence Staff, General Rick Hillier to lobby for Canada's highest military order, the Canadian Victoria Cross, to be awarded to Private Jess Rochelle, who in 2006 in Afghanistan performed heroically to save his fellow unit members while Private La Rochelle was himself gravely wounded. He's still suffering from those wounds and injuries, but he kept on fighting. So we talked to uh, Bruce Moncour, who's been on this program. First time Bruce was on with me was maybe 15, 17 years ago. After he had been severely uh, injured and had uh, was coming back health-wise, he had sustained an injury when he was hit by shrapnel from a shell fired by an American fighter jet which uh, struck Bruce in in the in the skull. So we had this conversation with Bruce and uh, General Hillier, and they were talking about Private La Rochelle and what he had done and how he'd comported himself in the face of uh, really incredible odds and how he'd saved his um, his fellow soldiers and that he deserved the uh, the uh, the least to be recognized properly and and you know we all felt should be awarded the canadian victoria cross and there was a national petition and then it went to parliament and in june of this year something happened and I, I'm sorry, I don't know if I was on vacation or what was going on, I was not really aware of what had taken place. So Bruce, Bruce Moncur is back with us. Bruce, th- thank you for coming back. And I know this is so important to you and to so many veterans from the Afghanistan campaign. Remind us, please, what the story is about Private Jess Rochelle
1: Of course, Roy. Thanks for having me back. Um, and it, it really helps to have voices like yours uh, advocating for us. But in a nutshell, uh, Jess, uh, we've, we've been advocating for Jess for about two years now, um, uh, basically um, saying that there needs to be an independent body review uh, of uh, experts, uh, panelists, uh, historians that review uh, Canadian soldiers from past and present, including uh, Jess, uh, and ask that uh, if the evidence uh, is deemed uh Uh, I guess, uh, uh, enough that they would uh, upgrade uh, these Canadians to the Canadian Victoria Cross.
0: And uh, that Victoria Cross, the Canadian Victoria Cross, was struck specially for Canada's military and uh, by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. If I recall correctly, there's been no Victoria Cross or Canadian Victoria Cross that's been awarded to a Canadian member of the military since the Second World War. Is that correct? We,
1: we have never given the Canadian Victoria Cross out uh, as a country. We have uh, done a, um, in, in 1993, uh, we took it over in, and then, sorry, I got some dogs.
0: No, I can, I can hear them. Him. We love dogs. We love dogs. <laughs> so it's okay. Let 19, them bark.
1: Right. Uh, 1991, uh, the Australians did it. They made their own Victoria Cross, and we followed suit two years later. And since then, in 93, when we've taken over and made the Canadian Victoria Cross, we have not given it out to any uh, Canadian um, uh, member of the military.
0: May I just read a little bit of what you sent me a, a year ago so that our listeners are really aware of what took place? Is that okay? Yeah. Yep. I'll read from the official citation. On October 14th, 2006, Private La Rochelle of the 1st Royal Canadian Regiment Battle Group was manning an observation post when it was destroyed by an enemy rocket in Pashmul, Afghanistan. Although he was alone severely injured and under sustained enemy fire in his exposed position at the ruined observation post, he aggressively provided covering fire for the otherwise undefended flank of his company's position. While two members of the personnel were killed and three others were wounded in the initial attack, Private La Rochelle's heroic actions permitted the remainder of the company to defend their battle positions and to successfully fend off the sustained attack of more than 20 insurgents. His valiant conduct saved the lives of many members of his company. What it doesn't say is that his injuries were a broken back, detached retina, deaf in his right ear and firing all the rockets caused shoulder problems. Two years later, shrapnel was still pushing itself out of his body. Imagine coming to with all these injuries and fighting off a sustained attack. It also doesn't mention that two LAVs on that flank had weapon stoppages, meaning he was the only sustained fire on that flank. And by his own testimony, he says he volunteered to go to the observation post despite the fact that the platoon was short-handed and undermanned. With knowledge that the attack was imminent, he went down to the observation post with two C6 machine guns, meaning you would have needed four people to properly man that position because the C6 is a two-man weapon. He also manned this observation point for an additional 12 hours after the battle before coming back to carry his section mate during a ramp ceremony. This information is missing from his citation, and because of this, we are calling for a review. Well, Bruce, the review took place, did it not? And then what happened? What happened when it went to Parliament, and uh, and the and the uh, parliamentarians had the choice.
1: So my my partner uh, MP Nikki Ashton submitted the uh, petition E thirty six thirty six, and it had a fourteen thousand one hundred twenty nine signatures. And from that um, member of Parliament, Aaron O'Toole, then. Put forward a unanimous consent motion
2: in the House,
1: which basically is it's, uh, put forward a motion asking for a independent body review, and uh, it would need all parties to agree. It would have to be uh, as the states unanimous. Um, he sent out a three days prior a fourteen page, um, I guess, uh, Dossett uh, a, a explaining what he was looking for, and actually worked with the Bloc and the NDP and uh, the other parties uh, worked with the Liberals and asked them what they would want to um, uh, to change. And in fact, the Bloc did ask for a few amendments which were made, um, and then they put it to a unanimous consent. And every party except for the Liberals uh, voted in favor of this independent body review.
0: Here's a statement from... Uh Vice Admiral Mark Norman, who uh, is on this program quite frequently, the Admiral wrote this. Over the past few months, I've been seized by the growing support across Canada for a review of Jess La Rochelle's Valor citation. Of everything I have read, I've been most impressed by the endorsements from members of La Rochelle's former chain of command who are now requesting a review of the original nomination. I do not understand why Canada was unable to find sufficient cause to award a Victoria Cross for at least one of the conspicuous acts of valor throughout our prolonged campaign in Afghanistan. Many Canadians distinguished themselves in ways equal to, or perhaps better than, our allies who have bestowed the highest honor on their most valiant soldiers. That's from Admiral Mark Norman. And yet, when it goes to Parliament, the Liberals voted down. And I understand... Correct me if I'm wrong here. There was some derision as well, uh directed toward the uh the member of parliament who suggested the uh the award for Private La Rochelle. Am I right about that?
1: There was. So it is it quite an odd situation because we worked his member of Parliament is the Speaker of the House, Anthony Rhoda, and we worked very closely with Mr. Rhoda's office and they're all in favor of it. And we also worked with the head of the uh the liberal uh member uh John McKay out of Toronto he's head of the uh defense committee and he's said that he's in favor of it so we honestly thought that they would be able to whip the vote uh unfortunately when Mr O'Toole got up to present he was heckled by the uh, by some of the liberals uh, a member from Prince Edward uh, Island uh and uh he had to ask them you know if if you don't support me at least show a little bit of decorum for the soldiers that we're arguing for and i'd like to also add roy that this isn't just um this isn't just jess we've identified 28 other soldiers 10 from afghanistan and uh another 18 from uh, other wars across uh our history uh in particular so, uh, two black soldiers from the first world war uh six indigenous soldiers from the world wars and we might we feel that uh, the possibility here is that they didn't get the Victoria Cross because of the racial biases for their skin color. Um, we we found one soldier in particular in the Second World War, uh, Mo Hurwitz, uh, who was uh, and I quote from uh, Professor David O'Keefe, who suggested that um, in his research that uh, Mo Horwitz did not get the Victoria Cross because and I quote, uh, Jews are known to lie. Oh my God! Quote. Yeah. So. I yeah. feel like we have enough evidence here yeah, you do. To, to go back and look at some of these, do. these soldiers, you know, racially, you know, religion, and others of that nature, that we feel that we can um, uh, uh, review them. For example, uh, Francis so, Pegamo. Peguimau- I'm, so, I'm sorry, Bruce.
0: We're, but, we're, I'm going to have to stop here. But okay. But what we're going to do is we're not going to stop with this now. This isn't just a one-off 10-minute interview. We will continue... Because the individuals you mentioned, and since uh, Jess LaRoche's case came before Parliament, we're not going to stop. The DND said it doesn't care. Public opinion isn't going to change its mind. Well, let's find out. Public opinion has changed many minds. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites.